Okay, Genesis 32. Genesis 32. And I'm just going to begin at verse 24. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. And Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he, God, blessed him, Jacob, there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. Therefore the children of Israel eat not of the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh, unto this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh in the sinew that shrank. Dear Lord, bless this message now. Rend the heavens and come down and visit us and teach us, and mold us, and conform us to the image of Christ, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. But Jacob wasn't a very nice person. You know that. His name means twister and deceiver, and that's what he was. He had a cunning character that became a snare to him. In his youth, being the second-born twin, he pressed his firstborn twin, Esau, for the rights of the firstborn son. Later, he deceived his blind father to obtain Esau's blessing, even using the name of God to get it. In the holiest of things, Jacob lied and deceived. And Jacob's craftiness backfired on him, big time. He was forced to leave his parents without friends, without possessions, just a staff, a cruise of oil. He could scarcely have been more poor. He was homeless. He crossed over to Jordan as he left the land of promise, leaving behind him a cursing brother and grieving, weeping parents. What future did he have as a homeless man? But astonishingly, God came to meet Jacob in his need at Bethel, where Jacob stopped for the night. God revealed himself to him, assuring Jacob that he, the Yahweh, the faithful covenant Lord, would be with him. And after a long journey, providentially, Jacob found his way, without a GPS, to his mother's family. He found a home 
A job. A woman to love. Well, two. And the Lord blessed Jacob's work. Though Jacob's uncle and employer changed his wages ten times, Jacob prospered. And after serving his uncle 20 years, God, who didn't want Jacob too comfortable away from the promised land, commanded him to return to Canaan. By that time, Jacob was rich, rich in family, rich in possessions. God had pursued Jacob in his wanderings and blessed him. Well, Jacob obeyed God's command to pack up and leave. And when his uncle Laban pursued and overtook him at Mount Gilead, God wonderfully intervened again in Jacob's life, reassuring him that he would protect him from Laban coming behind him and from Esau coming toward him. And the night before that meeting, the meeting with Esau, Jacob is just driven, just driven to his knees in prayer. In that prayer, you can read it in verses 9 through 12. Jacob pleads for God to help him. He pleads on the basis of God's covenant, God's command, God's promise, God's mercy, God's deliverance, God's faithfulness. Pleads have nothing of himself. He says, I'm not worthy of the least of all thy mercies. God has taught him a lot. And then he sends his wives, his children, everything he owns ahead of him in waves across the Jabbok, and he's left alone. He's left alone. God meets him a third time. God often meets his people when we're left alone. Today, everyone's afraid of being alone. Solitude and strife are a powerful combination for God to meet his people. When you're in great need and you're all alone, that's a prime time to commune with God. God is making Jacob fit in this wrestling encounter to enter the promised land in ways that Jacob did not. And through this experience in Genesis 32, God is conveying to us today the contagiousness of his blessing. Really what this story is all about is verse 29b. That, that's, that's the center of my text this morning. He blessed him there. I call this a contagious blessing, something we, we want. This is, this is a good thing to cut, this divine blessing. And I suggest to you that there's five contagious blessings that Jacob experiences in Genesis 32 here. We'll look at each one of them briefly. Perseverance, contagious perseverance. Prayer, contagious prayer. Contagious penitence. Contagious power. And contagious price. First then, contagious perseverance. Old 
Testament believers often gave special names to places of divine encounter with God. Jacob names this place Peniel. Peniel or Peniel, same, same word in Hebrew. What, what it means is, I've seen God face to face and been preserved. What a name. But Jacob chose that name so that later on, when his descendants would pass by that place and say, what is this place, Panah? Oh, this is where Father Jacob had this experience with God. And you see, that's what we ought to do with our children. Family worship, other times, tell them, tell them of the times we've had encounters with God and how sweet those times were. Penai, communion with God and preserve. Well, he's all alone. How would you feel if you're in the midst of darkness, all alone, and suddenly you felt hands on you? An assailant was grabbing hold of you. That's what happened to Jacob. His heart must have beat hard as the powerful hand of this nameless assailant lays hold on him. Now, Jacob was no pushover. You remember the story of how he had such unusual strength that he could roll away a stone from the well, the mouth of a well, that a number of shepherds were unable to move combined, and he did it all by himself. Well, imagine the sweating hands of another human being grabbing your own. Imagine the pressure of another man's legs compressing yours. Imagine Jacob gasping and reeling and staggering backwards and forwards as he resists his opponent's moves, tries to get a grip on him. This is a strong man, but he met a strong opponent. And at first he didn't realize who it was, didn't realize it was a theophany, didn't realize that it was a manifestation of God in the form of a human. And although the angel refused to give him his name, it's clear from Hosea 12 verse 4 that this was not just any angel. It was the Son of God. It was a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance on earth of Jesus. Jacob is wrestling with the God-man Messiah, do you understand? Who would one day descend from his own loins. The Messiah would die for Jacob's sins and rise from the dead for Jacob's justification. He's wrestling with the creator, the judge, the savior of the world, the Messiah set himself against Jacob, the Bible says. Jacob didn't start a wrestling match. wasn't his idea. The Messiah came to him, took him on, on the borders of the promised land, challenged Jacob, stood in his way as he approached his inheritance. He wrestled. God wrestled with Jacob. Have you ever wrestled with God? Has he ever wrestled with you in the dark? In the dark night of the soul? And you felt there was no future for you? No hope? Because of your sin or because of some huge problem? 
but there's no way out? Or because of huge disappointment or betrayal or loss or loneliness or disease or worry or anxiety? Two, three, four in the morning, wrestling with God. You know what John Calvin says in this passage? I love these simple words. All the servants of God in this world are wrestlers with him. All of them. But what's remarkable here is at Peniel, Jacob manages somehow to persevere in his wrestling match the whole night long. I once preached this sermon in a gathering where there was there was a, a, a fairly well-known wrestler. And I, I made this statement. I said, if you wrestle someone intensely for 10 minutes, you're completely exhausted. And he came up to me afterwards. He said, you got it wrong. It's six minutes. I mean, this wrestling is intense all night long. He persevered. I say to you, that's a contagious blessing. So often we give up. We give up so quickly. In our prayers too, don't we? You know, John Bunyan once made a list of his, his top 10 sins in his life for self-examination. Near the top of the list somewhere was this sin. I pray only once and then I leave the Lord alone. It's like a salesman coming to your door, knocking once. You go to the door or ringing the doorbell once. You go to the door and he's halfway across the lawn to the next neighbor. And you, you turn back, you look at your wife, you say, oh, well, must be a salesman. Get one of us. Bad, bad. But you see, when you can't live without God, you're a beggar. You keep knocking. You keep persevering. Like, like mercy and Pilgrim's Progress. You remember Christiana is let in with the other children. Mercy stands without. And she keeps knocking and knocking and knocking. And Bunyan says she would have knocked on until she fainted had not the Lord of the house opened the door and let her in. It's through persevering with God, by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God that we often get a sense of the divine presence of God. God doesn't always answer our first doorbell ring in the courts of heaven. And we, in our wrestling, are being taught, even as he seems to push us away with one hand, he's drawing us with the other, and we, we're being taught the sense of divine presence so that we need that God more than ever before, as we wrestle, we cry out, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Lord, I can't go on without thee. I need a Savior. I need a Lord. I need a prophet to teach me, a priest to intercede for me and sacrifice for me. I need a king to guide me and to rule me. Give me Jesus, else I die. Have you been there? Persevere. I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Well, this is the heartbeat of contagious prayer, too, don't you think? Alexander White, speaking of Scottish people, he's a great Scottish 
preacher. He said this, prayer is colossal work. Prayer takes all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, all our mind, all our life. To really come into that spiritual pathos and ethos that we can cry out to God, I will not let thee go except thou bless me, is no small thing. Jacob's not speaking his words arrogantly to the angel of the covenant. They're, they're spoken by an exhausted, helpless, broken man who would not let go of his God. And that's the mark of true faith. Faith will not let go of God. Faith will not turn its back on God. Faith will not go back home, think Canaanite woman, Matthew, Matthew 15. Even though God seemed to reject her three times in a row. Faith falls at his feet. Faith worships. Faith presses on in prayer. Prayer is a prerequisite to blessing. We can talk and preach and even worship God. But until we experience a time of intense struggling with him in prayer, we will not discover this place of sweet, contagious blessing in prayer to discover that prayer, though it's hard work many, many times, can also be sweeter than anything else in this world. When I was nine years old, I told you I was in that serious time of life. I wasn't saved, but serious time. And my dad saw it. He would talk to me quite a bit. But one time he said to me, took his wallet out actually, took some money out of his wallet, set it down beside me, and he said, son, I want to tell you something. Or I want to ask you something. First of all, he said, I want to ask you, what is the difference between a believer and an unbeliever? And I always said no to my dad. I just, I just didn't know the answer. I never got his right answer, so I just I didn't know. So I didn't know. He said, well, a believer always has a place to go. And then he spread that money out, and he said, if you have all the money in the world, an open throne of grace is worth more than all that money. Because prayer is the breath of the soul of the believer. It's a sweet thing to have an open throne of grace. And it's a close thing. It's an intimate thing. You see, Jacob can't wrestle with the angel when you're five feet away. You, in prayer closes the distance between God and us through Christ. In prayer, we wrestle, we have encountered, we're pleading, we're beggars at the throne of grace. We take hold of God. Isaiah 64, 7, God complains of Israel. There's no one who takes hold of me. No one who takes hold of me. What a complaint of God. I hope he doesn't have to complain of you and of me. That we never take hold of him. <clears throat> the old Scottish divines often said, You've got to pray until you pray through and lay hold of God. Lay hold of the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. That's what Jacob is doing here. That's what I'm convinced our forefathers had so much more of than most Christians today. Luther one day said to Philip Melanchthon, his right-hand man, he said, Philip, I've got so much to do tomorrow, I need to pray an extra hour. 
Think of it. Whoa. What do, you, what do you do? What happens to your prayer life when you've got a lot to do? It shrinks. Because it's, it's an appendix to our lives. Like an appendix at the end of a book. But you see, what the Reformers and Puritans had so often was prayer was their life. And they had to pray their way through everything. It was a lifestyle. And so Luther says, I've got to spend more time in prayer because there's more things to do. John Welch, son-in-law of John Knox, his wife said that kept a robe beside his bed in northern Scotland, and every every night he'd get up at some point in the night and go off in the side cool room and cry out to God for his people. He had a congregation of 3,000, and she'd get very worried, so she'd, she'd sneak out of bed and she wouldn't dare, wouldn't dare go in the room. It's too sacred, she said. But she would stand outside the door and she'd say, John, honey, please come back to bed. You're going to catch pneumonia. And she'd hear this voice coming back through the closed door. Oh, my dear, I have 3,000 souls to care for, and I know not how it is with many of them. Pray for them in the middle of the night. Wrestling for his people. Contagious prayer. Do you want to be a wrestler with God? Do you want to lay hold of him? Do you want that sweet communion in prayer with God? Jacob is a model here for us. But then there's this contagious penitence. <clears throat> contagious penitence, <clears throat> or repentance, we could call it today. It's impossible, you see, to be in the presence of God and to experience his holiness, his righteousness, his majesty, without being aware of our sinfulness and our need for profound humility. Without repentance. You, you, faith and repentance are two sides of one coin. I'm sure you've heard that before. You can't believe without penitently believing, and you can't repent without believingly repenting. And so wherever you are in the presence of God, wherever you wrestle with God, wherever there's genuine prayer, it goes above the ceiling from your soul to the living God. There's a sense of penitence, repentance as well. Well, you say, well, where is it in this passage? Two places. First, the angel's crippling touch. The angel's crippling touch. Angel touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh. He didn't crush it, mind you, but he, but he touched it. He used his divine power just enough to break Jacob's pride, to break his self-reliance, and to break his strength because the thigh, as any of you who wrestle much know, that when you, when you, when you take a opponent and you throw them, you, you, you need your thigh, and you throw them over, over your thigh, as it were. Uh, and Jacob was, was touched right there so that he would become weak before God, would lose the battle, and become gripped by God's relentless, crippling grace. 
He's out of, his hip is out of joint. He's in agony. He knew he couldn't win this fight. He's a beaten man. But the amazing thing is he doesn't give up. What, what can you do? What can you do when you need God's blessing and God breaks you and you've got no strength left? The only thing you can do is like in wrestling, wrap your arms around your opponent and just fall with your dead weight upon him. That's no doubt what Jacob did. I will not let thee go except thou bless me. He's crushed. But you see, the mighty paradox of grace is this, that when Jacob is wounded and bruised and broken, he continues to wrestle with God. And God, the wonderful truth, is that God takes Jacob's failures, takes his weakness, makes him live all the more, in order to break his self-reliance, his scheming, self-justifying, self-made success, so that Jacob learns from the failures he has experienced to live all the closer to God. What does that teach us about some of our life's failures, our sins, our needs. If you think you're all washed up, my friend, because your failures have humiliated you and brought you down, consider perhaps that God is crippling you because he couldn't move you to repentance in any other way. And he wants you penitent. He wants you weak and broken. One forefather said, God will seldom use a man greatly until he's broken in deeply. It's a very brokenness in you that you need in order for God to bring you back to himself so that you cling to him and beg for his mercy to go on. But now here's the twist in the story, the amazing thing. The angel, feeling the dead weight of Jacob, the angel of the covenant, now says, let me go for the day birth. So Jacob is defeated, but Jacob's weight and his ongoing wrestling is also getting the victory in his brokenness and weakness over the angel. And Jacob's response is, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. He held on to the angel now because Jacob is realizing now as the night wears on that this opponent is not just an ordinary man, not just an ordinary angel. He clung to God because he knew that without God, he could do nothing. God had won the victory in the wrestling match. His thigh was out of joint. But Jacob won the victory as well, for God would not let Jacob go. And what a beautiful win-win situation that is. Don't you think? That's what God does when we have personal encounters with him. It's a win-win situation. Jacob wins. He wins by losing. And God wins because he has Jacob where he wants him to be. Jacob has power through weakness and prevails and gets his name changed. God has power through strength and prevails. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. So this is not a tie. This is not a draw wrestling match. It's a double win. And the way of grace is always a double win. The way of grace is always a double win. Jacob wins by being blessed. God wins by being the blessing. 
And by being the blesser, the blessing in Jesus Christ and the getting glory to himself makes God the winner, even as Jacob is the winner by receiving the blessing. When I am weak, Paul says, then am I strong. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Blessed are you when you are broken and weak and cast yourself fall upon the sovereign wisdom and power and goodness of God in Jesus Christ as a penitent sinner, clinging to God, clinging to his promises, clinging to his word, crying out, all things are possible to him that believes. I believe, help out my unbelief. But the second place we see Jacob's penitence here is not just in the angel's crippling touch. It's also in Jacob's new name. Jacob's new name. What is thy name? The angel goes on to say. Verse 27 now. What does Jacob say? Well, let's think this through a moment. Let's go back down the quarters of time a moment. Let's go back 20 years. There's a young man standing beside his father's bed. What is thy name, son? Esau. Esau. Did Jacob ever really repented of that? You don't read of it, do we? Now he says, Jacob, deceiver. Twister, sinner, unworthy. That's who I am. That's who I am. Jacob finally becomes before God who he really is. Deceiver, a sinner, a liar. Esau had already said of Jacob, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he hath deceived me two times. Esau could see it, but Jacob didn't want to admit it. Oh, Father, I am Esau. I am Esau, thy firstborn. But God says now, I've met you. I'm meeting you now, before you go back into the promised land, Jacob. I can't have you go back into the promised land as Esau. You've got to go back into the promised land as, as Jacob, as a sinner, saved by grace alone. So he could, at this point, no longer scheme or plot, for he found someone stronger than he, and he's broken before God. He says, thou must bless me. I cannot do it. I have no more schemes. I'm done. I'm done with all my trickery. I am Jacob. I am deceiver. Supplanter. You see, David says in one of the Psalms, I think it's Psalm 32, when I own my own transgressions, when I become who I really am before thee, then thou dost forgive my sins. We think if we become honest with God, he'll, he'll cast us away forever. But it's just when he embraces us forever. When we're broken, become who we are, who we are before God. 
Jacob repents here. He becomes who he is. Who he is. And then God says, Your name shall no more be called Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince, I was powered with God and with men, and has prevailed. Amazing. Contagious power. That's the forethought. Contagious power. Think about this. God is acknowledging that Jacob in all his weakness had power with God and prevailed. And God blessed him there. And gave him a new name. Gave him a new name. A name that said, God's power will prevail with his children so that they will prevail with him. God loves to so conquer his children in their brokenness so that his children conquer him with their prayers and cries through Jesus Christ. He blesses them. So that Christ fights for us and in us and we overcome in and through him. In Christ we receive a new name. In Christ, we are personally transformed. In Christ, we overcome sin through the anointing of the Spirit. In Christ, we overcome our enemies. In Christ, we overcome past sins and present sins and future sins. In Christ, we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. In Christ, we taste the contagious power of the Son of God being our Savior and our Lord. Not a magical power, not, not just a mere mental power, not just a, a meritorious power from our side, but Jesus Christ, the angel of the covenant, wrestles and prevails over all the powers of hell and sin and evil for all the Jacobs who his father has given to him for all eternity. It became a worm in Gethsemane and no man. Gabbatha, Golgotha, he took the place of sinful Jacobs. To deliver us. To rename us. To give us contagious power. That we may have power with God. At the throne of grace. And prevail. So we exercise this contagious power. In a variety of ways. In dependence on the Spirit's grace. We exercise it. When we're acutely aware of our own weakness and sin. And lean only on Christ. As Isaiah 33 says, the lame take the prey. We exercise it when we have simple, childlike, unresolving, unbending uh, un, un, un faith in Christ. You believe in God, believe also in me. When that happens, experientially the soul, you see, we prevail with God. Then, Faith the size of a mustard seed is, is huge. We exercise this power when we strive for the ingathering of Christ's kingdom, when we, when, we, when we have evangelistic hearts, because we've been conquered. If God can save me, he can save anyone, anyone in this world. And we want to go out. We want them to have that same salvation. We want them to know that same joy, that same power. We, we have power with God. When we pattern our lives after Christ, when we're conformed to his image, so that we can be salt of the earth and light on the hill, that by our godly conversation, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, others may be gained for Christ. He was renamed and given power with God 
And then it says, he blessed him there. We're blessed in Jesus Christ. Blessed in Jesus Christ. Today we we talk so lightly about being blessed. I don't know how many people shake the hand of a minister when they walk out of the church and say, I was blessed this morning. I was blessed. And sometimes you can just tell by their demeanor that they're just saying, okay, I kind of enjoyed this sermon. How different it is when they shake your hand and look in your eyes and there's tears there and they say, I was, I was blessed. I was really blessed by this statement you made or by that thought that penetrated the depths of my soul. To be blessed by God, with God, through God, to God, in Christ, is a sweet, life-transforming experience. Again, and again, and again. When you're really blessed, you just, you just want to go off somewhere by yourself. Just pour out your heart to God. And just be overwhelmed by His goodness. Overwhelmed that He would still take notice of you. Overwhelmed that He gives you all things in Christ. Oh, to have power with God is the most humbling thing in all the world. And He blessed him. Blessed him. Deceiver. Twister. There as he wrestled with him. Well, the angel then disappears, you know, and Jacob has to go on. You can't always stay in this kind of incredible, intimate, bonding, instructive, overturning, prevailing, intimate relationship with God. It's just too much. He has to leave Peniel now. The text says, verse 31, as he passed over Peniel, the sun rose upon him. Israel left Peniel. <coughs> he was no more Jacob. And yet, Jacob, like remnants, would afflict him again. But Israel leads. You know, when there's a sunrise, there's three beautiful things happening, don't you think? Aren't sunrises beautiful? It suggests promise, doesn't it? Sunrise suggests the promise of a new day. It suggests peace, how peaceful a sunrise is. And it, it suggests purity. It's like the sun just washes the filth off of everything. So it is spiritually. When we prevail with God, when we're blessed by God, there's a peace that passes understanding in the soul through the Prince of Peace. The promise of the gospel just transforms us and we feel like our life is made new, fresh again. And there's a kind of purity in communion with God that you just can't put into words. There's a sacred purity in communion with God that is worth more than anything in this world. And yet, that's my last point, there's a contagious price to pay. He's limping. He's limping. He's blessed. But he's injured. He's in pain still. The bright morning sun said Ken Hughes. 
revealed a stooped, bleeding, bruised man in tattered clothes, dark with soil and sweat, dragging the leg and grimacing with each step. He halted upon his thigh, the Bible says. There was a permanent mark. There was a price Jacob had to pay. In communion with God, there's usually a price we have to pay. It's not easy to be broken. It's not easy to be injured. But it's sweet to have communion with God. Yes, he's injured, but he's going forward. He's going forward. God is conforming him more and more to Jesus Christ. Amen. This is a severe mercy. A severe mercy that drives us closer to God. Where would you be if your life had no afflictions? Where would you be? You'd be spoiled brats, and so would I. You wouldn't know an inch or an ounce of humility. We need afflictions. We need the injured thighs, so to speak, speaking figuratively. We need to be broken in order to move forward to be conformed to the image of Jesus. In a sense, a true believer is a limping believer. As Augustine said, I would rather limp along the path to Christ than run outside of that path to hell. Come and let us return unto the Lord, Hosea 6, 1 says. For he hath torn us but he will heal us. <clears throat> he has smitten us. And he will bind us up. So, Israel goes on. He's a different man now. A broken man. Restored. He has power with God and with men. He's fit now to go into the promised land. And one day, you too, dear believer, will be received into the promised land, the heavenly land of King. Through all your brokenness, through all of life's trials, and you will say, and you will sing in the courts of heaven like you've never sung on earth, that all things have worked together for good to those who love him. But maybe you say, maybe you say this morning, you know what? I don't feel like Israel. I, I'm still, I'm just still Jacob. I've got good news for you. 20 times, 20 times in the Bible, after Genesis 32, God calls himself the God of Jacob. He's willing. He's willing to take deceivers, twisters, and transform them and turn you into Israel so that you can also say, happy is he that has a God of Jacob for his help. Yea, happy is that people whose God is the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God, I pray that we may know that wrestling life, that blessed life, that life of being conformed to the image of Christ through affliction, through conviction, through penitence, through crying out, but above all, through Jesus Christ who transforms us from within and who himself 
knew that life of wrestling with his father. Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass through me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Help us to end in Jesus with this sacred encounter of Jacob with a Christophany. And grant that we too may walk humbly with our God. And though limping, may crown him Lord of all and may proclaim him to everyone near and far that he is worthy to be served, to be prayed unto, to worthy to receive our heart, our soul, our life, and our mind. And grant us no rest, Lord, until we too can say, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.